Well, so great to be with you here. I've been looking forward to this. Um, I have missed some of the talks, unfortunately, so hopefully I don't say anything that contradicts <laughs> previous talks or disagrees. I don't think that that will be the case. Um, matter of fact, I think there will be a lot of really wonderful unity and symmetry with what has been said. So our topic, of course, as you know, is dealing with sin. The title of my talk is Overcome Fleshly Desire by a Greater Love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Sheila was shocked at what she had just said. At first, she couldn't believe it had come out of her mouth. Of course, she had to apologize and explain that she hadn't meant to say it and she didn't know where it had come from, maybe from watching too much Netflix. I don't know. Of course, all of this would be a lie. How committed are we to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Anyway, she started to stutter the apology, but it all sounded so hollow and unconvincing. She stopped herself talking and breathed a sigh of relief. Now was the time to put up her hands and admit her guilt. According to Jesus, her words expressed what was in her heart, which meant her sin was deeper and so more serious and a slipped out expletive or a throwaway insult. What was weird was that this came as good news to her. How could she feel a sense of relief after saying that? After thinking that in her heart? Especially after speaking so sinfully. It's because she understands the grace of God. That's why. And so, shame was replaced by sorrow. Explanation by simple repentance. And defensiveness by exhilaration. Admitting she was a specific sinner and confessing her specific sin openly meant that the good news of the cross seemed even better news than she had ever realized. A portion of this opening illustration came from a fantastic little booklet that I enjoyed called Gospel-Centered Life by Steve Manis and Tim Chester. In dealing with sin, the most important truth for you to know and for me to know and apprehend from our hearts is the amazing grace of God for you, for your sin. This is why Sheila, in this illustration, could have a sense of relief right in the middle of her funk that she can be relieved. Oh, she can relax because God's grace is there and ready through repentance and trust. There's a woman that gets grace. I've always been amazed by how many Christians out there don't understand grace very well. They may understand it poignantly at a young conversion or um, an awakening um, to grace for the first time and understanding what Jesus did for us. 
um, when they were younger, perhaps, or something. But, uh, but then so many Christians seem to just lose that sense of profound grace and mercy for them. And it creates a tremendous amount of trouble for their lives. <coughs> I know this has happened to me. Forgetting grace. That grace is not just that the glory of the gospel is not just for the beginning of the Christian life, but it's for the beginning and the middle and, and the end. It's for the entirety um, is how we are to view it. And so there are many Christians that stumble through life being perpetually defeated and guilty because of their sin. This may be some of you. They feel exasperated and stressed out have you ever known a Christian that is totally exasperated and stressed out? Happens all the time. Different reasons. But often, what's lacking is there's something profoundly missing from their apprehension of the gospel in the present. They're never able to make progress. It seems. Always feeling condemned and guilty. This is a person that is usually one of two things. It can be the case, maybe, that they're in rebellion. So, of course, they're going to feel condemned and guilty. And, you know, that's God's design feature when a Christian falls headlong into stubborn, willful, persistent sin. That they're tortured by a compromised conscience. This might be some of you. What you're hiding. What you're trying to keep hidden away quietly. I think those that are giving into this kind of unbelief in this way, usually stay away from events like we're doing this week. <laughs> Which is a part of the problem. <laughs> but There is another kind of person, though. The Christian who desires to do what's right, but isn't grounded in the grace of the gospel at all, so misses the center of what Christianity is all about. And so they live on some rival form, a shell of what it means to be a prospering believer. But the weight of a gospel-less Christianity is utterly crushing. And when I say gospel-less, I don't mean that they've renounced the gospel, that they've renounced the, the, the atonement of Christ. Um, no, it's, it's subtle. It's in their heart. They just, they're just stopped believing. But they would not say that. You know, they're faithful to go to church and say the creed and, and give intellectual assent and some degree of sincerity to it, but Again, our head and our heart can be in really different places, and so that's like that's the bulk of so much of what I'm addressing here. In dealing with sin properly, you have to have the gospel at the center. You have to, to properly deal with it. The authors of Gospel Centered Life say this the path of I love this quote, the path of the cross will crush you if you don't also embrace the pardon of the cross. That's why we need constantly to return to the cross to rediscover a new and regularly acceptance from it and pardon and the forgiveness and grace found up in it as well. That's why Jesus gave us the bread and the wine. Close quote. We need the living dynamic of the message of the cross throughout the Christian pilgrimage, not just at the beginning. Um, the Pilgrim's Progress was brought up by Pastor Drew 
And what you know what's interesting about Pilgrim's Progress, just one thing I want to say about it, is w- at what point in the storyline, most of you have read it, right? Mm-hmm. At what point of the storyline did his awakening happen to see the cross, the scales from his eyes falling, and he understands the cross is so beautiful, and the burden, you know, his burden just falls. At what point in the storyline does that happen? Generally. Any ideas? It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I'm not looking for like a chapter or page number. But like, it's not like right in the beginning of the story. But like, it's into the story a little bit. But it's early on. Like, it's kind of like at the beginning of, or early on in his journey. What that says is interesting because, you know, he, he so much of the book and the burden of Bunyan is talking about the trials and travails of Christian who's been converted already. But he has his whole life in front of him. He has his whole journey. And so that journey is working out the cross and, and obedience, right, from the implications of the cross. But that's important to understand. That's towards the beginning. <clears throat> There's way too many Christians that are living functionally in unbelief. You know, and they find themselves like Christian that have created a prison cell. It's very dank and very gross, but it's of their own making. Right, remember? And the, the promise, the promise of the gospel is in his pocket. And he's just sitting there in misery. I mean, that's just like so many Christians. They don't understand what they have. They don't understand what Christ has done. And they're looking for God to do more for them. And usually arranging circumstances different in their lives and that kind of thing. And not understanding what God has already done. are not feeling relieved by the gospel. If you're not feeling relieved by the gospel, I would encourage you to be careful. There might be something kind of off with that. You should feel completely relieved and at peace more often than not in the Christian life because that's what the gospel does. <laughs> it gives relief. It makes us lighthearted and happy and joyful. And so... They're not feeling relieved by the gospel, which means they don't believe or they're getting caught up in I perform for God and he accepts me and blesses me accordingly kind of thing, which becomes another form, it can, of gospelless Christianity. Guilt is not a good motivator in the Christian life. This is a notorious problem within Roman Catholic communities. Guilt and then the actions of ritual that one does to deal with such guilt. But it's so often powerless to bring genuine freedom, genuine faith. And so this brings me to our thesis. The only way to deal with sin is to, to really strike a fatal blow to our fleshly desires is through a greater love. Not just, not just avoiding something which is not really an effective form of really achieving the righteousness that God um, wants us to grow into. No, it's through a greater love, a greater affection, a love for and a heartfelt grasp of the amazing beauty of God's mercy for you and for me. And so, a love for this, a fervent um, fire in your heart that can never be put out for the love of grace, will, will that kind of love will overcome temptation. Not perfectly, that's not, not what I'm saying. But that's powerful, and it actually gives the power by God's Spirit to move you, to compel you, to persuade you of God's better way. 
But it has to be a real love, a deep and cultivated one. And so we must have a delightful, personal, and experiential acquaintance with this grace to win battles against the world and the flesh and the devil. Why? Because I'm a firm believer in this, philosophically and practically. Beauty persuades. Beauty persuades. People are always persuaded by beauty. You can define it differently, but the good, the cool, you know, the sleek, you know, the, the, the good stuff. We're, we're always persuaded by beauty. And many Christians don't, many Reformed Christians don't quite understand that. <coughs> beauty is what persuades when nothing else does. And so the only real way to a person's head is through their heart. It's deeper than just sentimentalism or affections or emotions. Not that, that's like superficial. I'm talking about the, the, the control center of our will and our cravings and our wants. That's the way we get to a person's head even. Their affections, that is. Listen to this quote by Soren Kierkegaard. He was a Danish philosopher. I'm sure you have read some of his. Of the 19th century. He said this. Mercy has converted more souls than zeal or eloquence or learning or all of them together. Isn't that beautiful? Mercy has converted more souls than all of those things. Biblically, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, that disarms us and draws us to him. We did not love him first. He chose us before the foundation of the world. His mercy converted us. It persuades us, and it's the only thing that persuades others. Do you persuade others with the beauty of God, with mercy, with kindness? Or do you resort to try to change a person through logical arguments or their sheer intellect or to slam down his foolish thinking? Logical arguments and thinking critically is essential, and it's all a part of what God calls us to. But remember... People have to be persuaded in the heart. And of course we know that God, that is God's business. God is the one that changes people ultimately. But God, we shouldn't allow ourselves to get off the hook so easily. Right? God uses means and he calls us to be his skillful ambassadors. Um, and we ought not to be lazy with the way that we live, thinking that God will make up for our laziness. So, guess what? It is God's love. His mercy, the philosophical concept of the good summed up in Jesus Christ that is the only thing that gives us power to properly deal with sin through greater loves cultivated around Jesus. So much of this is what I feel like Pastor Drew was, was on top of and all around. What, did, what, what was one of the things that Pastor Drew said? When it comes to the Christian life, essentially, he said, it is the motivation of the positive nature of the law right, that should shape our attitude towards obedience. Too much Christianity focuses on the behavior. This is, brothers and sisters, this is what I want us to be so careful of. The stuff on the branches of the tree and not the root, and it degenerates into moralism. Moralism and self-righteousness. Legalism, you name it. That does not give power over sin. Only repentance and faith in the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf. 
comes the power to deal with sin. And the more our hearts are calibrated to this gospel in love, we can overcome fleshly desire. Not perfectly, but consistently through greater loves. And so it's, it's always, ever, about the heart. So when it comes to your desires to grow, when it comes to, to your desires, which I hope you have very much so, um, it's ever about the heart. What's going on in there? You have to think about that before behavior. Because the heart, biblically, it speaks as of this word of the heart. It speaks to the control center of our desires. And that's where the battle is. Martin Luther said this, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Close quote. Be you a baptized church-going, put-together person, or not. Whatever your heart clings to, that is really your God. What is your heart clinging to? Daily. I'm not talking about like on Sundays at certain key moments, but like the, the rhythm, the rhythm of your life. Author James Smith says, You are what you love because you live toward what you want. That's where the battleground is. What do you want? Ponder that. I have been so enormously encouraged by the writings of James K.A. Smith. Have you guys ever read any James Smith? It's so profound. He said, It is my desires that define me. That's what defines you. What do you desire? And they come through in all the little comfort liturgies of our lives, the leisure. What do we do with leisure and entertainment and comfort? And that, that's where those, those habits and rituals and liturgies that reveal our desires that, that speak many things of us. Jesus said, Matthew 15, 11, It is not what comes into the mouth of a man that defiles him, but what comes out of his mouth. Why? why? Because it comes from his heart, Right? This is why the scriptures command us to guard our hearts, for from them flow the springs of life. In other words, everything, everything comes from the springs of our heart. Proverbs 4.23 Because in our hearts are our affections, true longings, regardless of what our outward profession might be. So when, I, when I'm trying to get to know a person, that's where I'm trying to go. I, I do get sometimes a little impatient with superficial conversation. I mean, I think most people do. I, I want to know what's going on in that heart, right? And, and to the degree that we reveal those things, I mean, it needs to be people that we trust, right? <laughs> and everything. But, but you, you learn a lot about a person when you can kind of get in there to, to those, that place of their longings and their wants. Smith writes, he says, the telos, right, the Greek word for goal or end or purpose, we live toward, the telos we live toward is not something we primarily know or believe or think about. Rather, our telos is what we want, what we long for, what we crave. Do you long for the kingdom of God? Where self is put to death and sacrificial love reigns supreme. Are your loves cultivated by habits of grace? 
habits that overcome the power of your fleshly desire. We're not brains on a stick, James Smith likes to say. We feel our way around the world more than we think our way around the world. I want to read a little bit more from Smith here and there because it gets to the marrow of so much of what we're talking about. He says, what if instead of starting from the assumption that human beings are thinking things, we started from the conviction that human beings are first and foremost lovers? That's true. That's why Smith writes so much about worship in his books, because we are what we worship. We are defined by our loves. You are his last will, his most significant book. You are what you love. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his. To want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. A vision, an imagination encapsulated by the kingdom of God. The godly person does what is on God's heart and mind. The priorities are aligned. But how do we get these desires aligned? I mean, that's one big question with this. How do we get those desires aligned? Well, it's not through getting more mere information. It's not doing more things for God. It's delighting in Him. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. I like John Piper's slight rephrase to that. The word by there. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And yes, obedience is totally a part of that. Absolutely. But it's practicing the habits of Christianity. Letting the identity-forming rituals and disciplines of daily grace shape our identity. Like what? Like feasting with other Christians. Not just the grand feasts like Thanksgiving and Christmas, but simple meals with simple conversation and love. Simple acts of love for your family and friends. The daily, smaller, little habits. The kingdom of God is built upon ordinary, mundane, simple little acts of faithfulness. What are the other kinds of habits that... um, shape our loves around God's loves. Feeding your soul with life-giving Christian books, theology for sure, it's so important. Rich sermons and podcasts, and especially the identity-forming practice of worship, of course, on the Resurrection Day. With a local body that you are completely in submission under and a covenanted member of. You see, we are more shaped by our daily and weekly little habits, day in and day out, than we are Intensive experiences of great devotion or manic flashes of piety. Do you understand? Our daily, weekly, monthly habits and little liturgies, they do more to shape you than flash in the pan, great, amazing sermon series or an amazing uh, conference or something. It's, it's how you live. It's how you live and the kind of quality of the habits of what you live. Being a faithful member of God's church and worshiping, serving, giving, sacrificing for and with imperfect pastors, yes, and imperfect people, including you, all around you, in a local expression where you live over many years, 
will do more to shape who you are and your loves than a stellar sermon series from the greatest preacher you can imagine. And so, we are what we practice. More than the doctrine we hold to on paper and the creed we confess, what are the practices of your heart? That's what you must ask yourself. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration that really kind of dovetails a lot with what Pastor Drew was talking about this morning. When addressing sin, addressing um, cultural sin that's all around us, particularly the epidemic of sexual perversion that we are in the midst of as a culture, and we are in an outright epidemic of sexual perversion and chaos and dysfunction, we can't just condemn the wrong. We must call sin, sin, absolutely. But being known for what we're against without the positive, without the greater encompassing vision of the good life, the the good, that does not compel. It doesn't compel children. And children growing up in homes where it's law and duty and guilt and very little liberated gospel, what happens to them? If there's not a lot of love, there's not a lot of gospel, and it becomes kind of a gospel-less Christianity that's filled with con- condemnation, filled with rules, and maybe filled with a lot of other good things, a lot of, a lot of times young people will apostatize from that kind of a culture in the home. It's not compelling. Are we compelling? The Democratic Party does better on some of their social platforms and some of their rhetoric because they have... It's filled with a lot of lies, in my opinion, but there's a, there's a for the poor, for the oppressed, for the minority. It's, it's, it's kind of like a Christian vision in some sense. Um, the Democratic Party and their rhetoric sometimes is more known for what they're for. I'm just stating that. That's just an obvious thing. Whereas conservatives, what, you know, we are probably mostly conservatives and tend to lean on those things in this kind of circles. Conservative Party is more known for what? Any ideas? What comes to mind? Saving money. Yeah, that's a good point. I kind of thought of that, but yeah, we're and we're also known for like what we're against. That's not quite. That's not full. That's not complete. That's not mature. You know, or for like, or for guns. We're known for guns. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. Um, and for what we're against, you know, and what culture's doing, and what's what comes on the television, what comes on the internet. I mean, yes, we need to be concerned about those things. It's important, but we need to be known for what we're for. We need to be skillful at laying out. Now, you think you know the good life. You think you you have the good, but no, no, you. <laughs> and then to be able to show them with your own life and your rhetoric a much much better vision of the good life in Christ. See, a gospel as Christianity is not good at dealing with sin. And it's judgmental and it's condemnatory of themselves and of others. And so when the Christian community defines itself around what it's against morally, it focuses on avoiding and railing against bad behavior and this is the seabed of legalism. No. 
Instead, a gospel-saturated community is concerned with people's hearts first and foremost as the root for whatever may be happening with their behavior. And in the case of great sexual confusion and rebellion in our present culture, which will only get worse, by the way, our wonderful task, and it is a wonderful task, is to show the world how good, how harmonious sex is, how beautiful it is, under the blessing of God. That's what people who are transgender and who are struggling with homosexuality, that's what they need to see. They need to see that man and that woman in that heterosexual marriage loving each other and having an amazing marriage. They need to see children that love that and delight in that and respond to sex appropriately. And not being obsessed about it, on the one hand, or not being weird about it, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier, right? Not having this opposite reaction to it that is more legalistic than it is biblical. You see, we persuade by the superior good the greatest apologetic argument in the history of Christianity. Do you know what it is? It's love. It's been the best known um, apologetic argument in the history of Christianity. It's love. As Pastor Drew said, well said, sinning is doing less than what has been promised for us. It's way beneath us, way beyond what, way underneath what God has intended for us. And I love what uh, Karl Barth said. Obedience is the bond of freedom. Is that your perception of Christianity? Is that your sibling's perception of Christianity? That obedience is the bond of freedom. And so, how compelling are we at casting a vision of the good life in Jesus Christ with ourselves and our own hearts as we speak to ourselves um, and with others by the way we talk? Many of you have probably heard this quote before. I probably will butcher the French name here, but Antoine de Saint-Exupéry in his now famous line shows us the way. Gives us a snapshot of a direction here. That longing and imagination move people. You need to nurture your imaginations and your longings around the true, the good, and the beautiful. That's what moves you. That's what moves me. That's what moves you. That's what moves people. He says this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work. But what? Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That's rhetoric. You stir that imagination. You stir by beauty. And we, when we nurture our hearts in God's beauty, we'll give you power. Power to live well. Uh, power to glorify God and to love obedience and put to death sin where you need to put to death sin. Finally, James Smith says this. He says, we aren't really motivated by abstract ideas or pushed by rules and duties, right? Mere duty is not the best motivation for living the Christian life. Instead, some panoramic tab- tabloid of what looks like flourishing has an alluring power that attracts us, drawing us toward it, and we thus live and work toward that goal. We get pulled into a way of life that seems to be the way to arrive in that world, 
Such a telos works on us, not by convincing the intellect, but by allure. Close quote. By allure. Replace sinful habits by cultivating habits of truth, goodness, and beauty. And the deeper you go with these rich habits, the more the beauty of God will compel. You will overcome by greater loves. I want to close with a short story. It's a recent missionary report uh, by a man on the field with his family in a community of Christians with a whole lot of poverty all around them. This is an amazingly beautiful story. It encapsulates so much of what um, I have been saying. Some of you know Peru Mission. Do you know Peru Mission? Have you heard of Peru Mission? Wes Baker. Uh, um, great work in Trujillo, uh, Peru. This is what he said recently. I gave a biannual presentation to the mayor and city council on the status of our work in the district. At the close of my talk, as always happens, the first person to speak was transgender city council person, Luisa Revilla. When she stood up again this time, I braced for the onslaught, asking the Lord to give me grace to respond gently, but with clarity and boldness. To my surprise, instead of attacking us, which was her custom, she said this. Mr. Mayor, fellow council members, city staff, and guests, as you know, I have always opposed Peru mission. It's no secret that I've been a particular headache to Reverend Baker. But I was wrong. In the past few months, I visited the church in, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Arvello many times. I've watched doctors and nurses in Bethesda care for the elderly, the poor, and children with love and kindness. I've watched teachers in Geneva, I think it's their school, show love and tenderness to students. I've seen the attention given to poor children and families in the Christ Kids program. I've also attended meetings in the church and been deeply affected by how the pastors treat their flock and visitors with love. Since I too am a Christian, this first, he said this is the first time we've heard this, <laughs> I have to respect what they're doing. They are a great blessing to our neighborhood and our city. I was, I was wrong. They deserve our utmost support. That is Christianity. That is a model of the good life that flourishes. It's beautiful in God's kingdom. These habits that they practice in that community. That's God's beauty. That's a kingdom of God that's beautiful. And that brings down walls. Let's pray. Father of glory, we, it is your kindness that has led us to repentance. It is your mercy that has won us and disarmed us. And you have loved us when we were ugly, when we were in rebellion, when we were nasty. And you set your affection and love upon us. And it is a beautiful story. We thank you for your profound, consistent, steady, secure, faithful, and loyal love for us in all our days. And we pray that we would 
practice the habits of grace, being in this grace in which we stand, and it would be a kingdom. A kingdom like the snapshot of what we see in Trujillo, Peru, in our contexts, where walls will come down and the loss will be compelled. We thank you for this. By your spirit, work these things out in our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.